Good morning, everybody. So good to see you guys. Um, and before we dive into week two of the world turned upside down, I did it. I knew I'd do it. Hamilton's got to make an appearance. Um, before we dive into this, I want to share a little bit about something that's going on this uh, Christmas season and something that we've done in um, all two years of our existence and history of a church uh, called the Give Hope Offering. And uh, Give Hope 2022 is coming down the pike. This is a special offering that we take at our Christmas at Bridgeway services at the end of the year where we want to give hope to some people that need it this uh, Christmas season. And, and years previous, I mean, you guys have given in incredibly generous ways to some of our local nonprofit partners to make a difference in our community. And we wanna give everybody an opportunity to uh, give generously uh, again this year. Now, we know it looks a little different for many of our families this year because we are um, just in this season of funding our new building across the street, uh, which, hey, by the way, um, we closed on the land on Friday. We own, we own that place. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna get start just like taking all my meetings out there and you know, it's gonna freeze, but I'm like, it's ours. <laughs> um, anyway, but we know that many of you guys are digging deep to give sacrificially and generously towards that. And so maybe for you, um, part of your Give Hope offering this year is just you fulfilling those commitments, you know, changing over that recurring gift to your new recurring gift or um, giving part of your one-time gift um, commitment during the Christmas services. That's all awesome. But we also wanted to give you an opportunity to give through Bridgeway this year. And so we have uh, picked uh, the Valley of Grace, which is a local nonprofit, faith-based recovery center for those struggling with addiction. And we want to uh, give towards a fund uh, for people that want to go get help but money is standing in the way. And we've done this actually in years previous to where, I don't know if you guys knew this, but because of your generosity, we've helped three different people go um, through the program. It's amazing, right? Without them having to pay for anything, which is really, really awesome. And that was a smattering of an applause for a really cool thing. That was so lame, you guys. But anyway, uh, we've done that. And even for somebody who's even a part of our church here at Bridgeway. And so we wanna continue to replenish that fund and help people that want help and they want to get better, but the finances are standing in the way. So you can give some at the end of the year towards that, but we also want to give you an opportunity uh, to give of your time and to give of, of your energy in this way, especially if you've got other financial commitments going on. So we have this QR code that's up on the screen. So you can open up your camera app on your phone. It leads you to a link that is a sign up page because the week of Christmas, we have opportunities to serve meals to the guys at Valley of Grace, to cook, to clean, to hang out and to serve meals for them um, that week. So it's an opportunity for us to go be the hands and feet of Jesus outside of church and to serve some people that are looking to get better and to get to the other side of their addiction. So you guys can get that link now. Um, in the next couple of weeks, we'll continue to talk about it, give you opportunities to sign up. This is a great thing for you and your kids to do together. It's a great thing for you and your table group to do together, but we're going to have opportunities for us to serve them and to give hope to them this Christmas season. Cool. Sound good? We're excited about it. I can't tell if you guys are with me or not, but I'm excited about it. Okay, cool. So let's dive into week two of The World Turned Upside Down. Um, and what we're talking about in this series is the reality of how Christmas changes everything. It changed everything. The reality that God in human form, in Jesus, uh, he came to earth uh, as Emmanuel, which is the Hebrew word that literally means God with us, how that changed everything and how it still changes everything for us. 
I love Pastor Rick Warren says this about the with us factor of Christmas. He says this, we do not serve a distant and detached God who spouts encouraging cliches safely from the sideline. I love this because this is not the God that is revealed to us in the scriptures. This is not the God who's revealed to us at Christmas. No, we have God revealed to us as someone who comes as a vulnerable baby to be with us, to be well acquainted with our suffering and with our struggles and with our challenges. And that changes us. It changes the way we see God. It changes the way we see other people. It changes the way we even see the value of ourselves. It turned the world upside down. It's still turning the world upside down. And if you're here with us last week, Allison gave an incredible message challenging us to understand that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And there are ways that we can be lost and think that we're found. And there are ways that we can think that we're uh, found, but we're lost, all those different kinds of things. But Jesus came to find us and welcome us home. And that changes everything for us. Today, uh, I wanna lean into the reality of the types of people that Jesus came to. And I think as we dive into this, we'll, we'll see ourselves inside of this. We'll all see how Jesus came for us. But I had this thought thinking about just the way that Jesus entered into human history and just the way that our culture is ordered today. You guys agree with me that like as a society, we're obsessed with famous people and celebrities like, I mean, you go to the grocery store, you see all the magazines or you see like all the interesting things that always get shared like crazy or the news headlines about like, why do I care about this? Oh, it's because they're famous. Like all those different things. We're all kind of obsessed with it in our culture. I mean, on Monday of this week, I just posted on my Facebook, hey, does anybody have a story of how you met a celebrity out in the wild, like in real life meeting a celebrity? And it was like the most popular thing I've ever posted on Facebook. It was like 94 different people shared their story. People were interacting with the other stories, how they met like NBA players or they met met uh, superstars, pop stars, rock stars, politicians, actors. I mean, it was amazing. I was jealous of a couple, honestly. Like somebody met Bradley Whitford from the West Wing and it's like my favorite TV show of all time. Like jealous. But the big one was somebody from our church met Sir Paul McCartney, y'all, from the Beatles. I was like, Oh, I would have been there like, hey, Paul, remember that time you were in, in the Beatles? Yeah, tell me about that. Like, I've been like so nervous because I just get awkward whenever I'm around any kind of fame. I don't have a cool story. Um, I remember probably the closest brush with fame for me was um, one time my family was flying somewhere and my brother and I were sharing a row and sitting down right in front of us, somebody walked on the plane and we knew immediately he was the lead actor from this Disney original movie. I don't know if you guys remember this, but Disney used to have an original movie on TV every month and it was like the biggest thing that ever happened to somebody born in the 90s or 80s. And it was like this crazy thing. And it was this lead actor from the movie that won all the Oscars for the greatest movie of all time, Johnny Tsunami. <laughs> if you don't know, you'll know. But Johnny Tsunami was this movie that I probably watched 200 times uh, from start to finish. And it was this, this beautiful Oscar bait worthy story of this kid who was in Hawaii and he was a surfing champion and he had to move to the slopes of Utah to learn how to like uh, do his thing there. And honestly, guys, this guy, he, he sat down right in front of us on the plane and my brother and I knew it immediately, but we were so awkward that we couldn't like talk to him or even ask for a picture at the time. We awkwardly just started talking about the movie, Johnny Tsunami, to look at his reaction. So I'm like looking through the seat and my brother is like, Hey, remember that movie, Johnny Tsunami? And I'm like, yeah, that movie was the best. And like, he's like smirking and all this stuff. And we never actually talked to him because we're awkward and lame. I don't know what our deal was. But we all get awkward around celebrity because there's so some kind of light or aura around influencers or celebrities or stars. And we're all kind of starstruck by it. 
And what I find to be so fascinating as we talk about Christmas is how uniquely opposite from celebrity and fame that Jesus entered into human history. I mean, just the poetry of it knocks me out, you guys. That God enters into the human story in human form and his son Jesus comes onto the planet in the backwaters of the Roman Empire in an insignificant small town from an insignificant people and an insignificant working class family and the God of all the universe is born in human form in straw and strong farm animal smells. Just the poetry just knocks me out. This is how our God chose to show up. This is the story. And I think he did it on purpose to tell us something, to show us something of what he is all about. But not only in the way that he came onto the human scene, but I think it reveals something to us as well about the way that Jesus came onto the human scene and the types of people that it seemed like Jesus was running towards every chance he got. Jesus, he wasn't born right to the middle of Rome to meet with Caesar and to get his word out through the big channels of their communication systems. No, he's on the outside. And he met with insignificant, small, messy, broken outsider types all the time. And something that's amazing to me about the Christmas story that maybe you've never thought of it this way is that it, the Christmas story reveals to us a collision between two worldviews. The Christmas story reveals to us a collision between the way that our society and world is ordered, the values of our society, and another society, another kingdom, another family, God's kingdom, God's order, God's values. And there's this collision between the two that Christmas shows us so crystal clear. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the way that our society, the way that our world is ordered, where the values, the winds of our society, I mean, they're kind of expressed in some of these words, right? Power, control, winning at all costs. Everything is a loss unless it looks more and up into the right. Power that we can actually make our own decisions that nobody is beholding to us and that we're in charge. Our world seems to really value the people that are high-powered leaders with the loudest microphones and the biggest armies or businesses behind them. Our world, our culture is ordered by this word, wealth and possessions. You know, want to know how you're really winning is do you have more money than your parents did, and they had more money than your grandparents did, and you have more zeros at the end of your bank account this year than last year? Are your investments up? Do you have the latest toy? Can you take the most elaborate vacation this year? Do you have a bigger house than you did five years ago, a nicer car than two years ago? Like, we order everything up and to the right because of wealth and possessions, and that's just the way our culture is ordered. Here's another one. Status or influence What's a value in the culture, the kingdom of our world, right? It's, it's, it's what do things look like? When you walk into a room, does everybody turn and whisper and say, there they are? 
in a good way? <laughs> do, they, do, they, do they turn and they think, oh, I can't believe how cool they are, how important they are. And isn't it true that we build our little digital kingdoms, our online profiles, where we only show our highlight reels and we wanna make sure that our kids are always smiling and the house behind us looks amazing and they can almost smell the freshly baked blueberry muffins coming out of the oven when they look at our stuff. And we build this up because we want to look good even if we're not feeling really good. Here's another word that I think is a value of our culture today that you might not think of often, but it's independence, it's autonomy. This one's baked into our nation's story, our origin story as Americans, but it's this rugged individualism. It's this grit, this I can do it myself reality. You know what winning looks like with independence or autonomy? It it looks like I don't need anybody else. I can do it on my own. And we celebrate those people that did everything on their own and we lift them up. These are the values of our culture or of our world. This is just what it is. And oh my gosh, what is happening over there? (laughs) Squirrel, squirrel, focus. And maybe you look at this list Uh, Maybe you look at this list and you're like sort of giving yourself like a score on each one of these. Like, how are you feeling? You might, I got three there. I got two there. Maybe I'm a five star on this line. And, and for you, maybe you're looking at that and you're like, you know what, but I'm exhausted looking at this. Like, it's like this rat race that I can never actually win because I'm never going to get there. And you feel exhausted. Or maybe you look at this and you already feel defeated having power, wealth, status, independence. And you feel like you're just, you'll never get there. And if that's you and you feel tired or you feel uh, defeated, um, first, I just want to tell you, like, I'm right in that boat with you. I'm not immune to any of these chases or any of these values. And these things are struggles in my life as a pastor, as a man, as a father, as a husband. Like, man, they're all right there. So I'm right in the boat with you. But I also want to tell you that I'm so glad that you're here. Because what we're going to see again is a different kingdom, a different order of the world, a different set of values that Jesus came to spread and he's inviting us to spread it with him. Because when Jesus came onto the scene, he he talked about a different kingdom also, a different order, a different set of values. And in this kingdom of God, he said multiple ways that it's not like what you think it is. It's not like what you see around you. Near the end of his life, he's standing before Pontius Pilate and he says this about his kingdom. He says this, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. In other words, like what I'm up to, as our British friends say, what I'm on about is not what you see around you. It's from another place. It's from up there. It's the values of heaven. And he's actually on a mission to spread the values, the heartbeat, the embrace of heaven down on this place. And he expounds a little bit on what this looks like Uh, one time when he was in his hometown synagogue and it was his turn uh, to read at their synagogue gathering on Saturday, Shabbat. And he would read from this scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And there's this one day where he starts to explain his mission. And he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, and he says this, He's quoting the scriptures from the Old Testament. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now notice, friends, notice 
who he was coming for, what his mission was all about. It was for the poor, those who were lacking. He says, I'm here for the prisoners, those who are, those who are locked up literally, figuratively, the prisoners, I'm coming for you. He's come to recover, give recovery of sight for the blind people that couldn't experience life the way that they wanted to, people that had impairments, he's coming for them to set the oppressed free, those who had been locked up by injustice and had the boot of Rome or religious oppression on their neck, he came to set them free. He says, I've come to give good news to all those kinds of people. And then just if people weren't picking up what Jesus was putting down, the very next thing he says is so epic in Jesus style. He says this, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he had an old fashioned scroll drop, like a mic drop, right? Because he's saying, I want you to understand that this is what I'm up to. This is what I am doing. This is what my father's business looks like. This is gonna be my mission on earth is to bring good news to these people. This was his kingdom. And my friends, this is what Jesus did through his life. And it's upside down, but it's so beautiful and it's scandalous, but there's something that we just lean into because we're drawn to it like a bug to a light. Because Jesus was coming for not those who had it all together, not those that felt like they didn't need assistance, but he came for the least, for the last, for the messy, for the outsider, for those outside the lines. That's who Jesus came for. And he did this in so many incredible ways that are still revolutionary and scandalous to us today. Jesus came for the least, those who were considered unimpressive, those who were, were considered insignificant, and there was a couple groups of people specifically that he invited into what he was doing that in the ancient world was so revolutionary. One was children. It's hard for us to imagine a time when children weren't elevated so high, but I would just argue that the reason we elevate children so high today in our world is because of a world that was shaped by the teachings of Jesus, whether they know it or not. Because in the first century, children were not even considered third-class citizens. Children weren't just told to be seen and not heard. Children were an option. Legally, in the Roman Empire, you had eight days before you named a child because you had a decision to make. Were you going to leave this child outside to die from what was called exposure, to commit infanticide, which was legal under the Roman Empire, or did you bring them in? You notice there was Roman law during this time to where if there was a child born with any kind of deformity, if there was a child that was any kind of a challenge, if there was a child born of the wrong gender and just guess what the wrong gender was during this time, then they could leave them outside just to die. This was the world that Jesus was born into. And Jesus specifically flipped the script upside down on how we see children. There's one account we find in the book of Matthew. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hand on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus' disciples were like, get these kids out of here. Jesus is up to important business. He's doing the kingdom of God thing. It's too important for these insignificant, little, unimpressive kids that are just snot-nosed and smelly, and they're not really important at all. And Jesus says this in response. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus says, oh, you got it all wrong. Kids matter. Their life 
is significant here and now. And he takes a little step further. He ups the ante and says, you know, kids got something on you guys, my disciples. They're gonna be first in line in my kingdom and you're actually lagging behind these kids. My kingdom belongs to such as these little children. What a revolutionary idea. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around it, but this was unheard of. And you know what? Early followers of Jesus, they began the practice of adoption and orphanages to take care of children that were left behind because they saw the way that Jesus treated the least of these, these unimpressive children. But it wasn't just children. It was another group of, um, of society that was completely considered at least a second-class citizen. It was women. Jesus was born into a deep, deeply patriarchal society where women were not encouraged to learn how to read and write. After a couple years of schooling, they were told to go home and cook and clean and take care of the household. Did you know in the world that Jesus was born into, women's testimony in a Roman court wasn't even considered valid because they were considered uneducated or too hysterical to actually be trusted in a court of law. This was the world that Jesus was born into. All these barriers for over half of the human race in this deeply patriarchal society. And Jesus, again, flipped the script in so many ways. There's one encounter we get when Jesus comes to the home of Mary and Martha. Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, and here's what's revolutionary. Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, sitting at someone's feet is a Jewish idiom that we would not catch in our English language, but to sit at anyone's feet was to be under their teaching, to be under their wing, to become a student, to become an apprentice, to become a disciple of such a person. Jesus tells us here that Mary was a fully participating disciple in his kingdom movement. She was allowed to sit at his feet, which would have been revolutionary and scandalous in the first century. And I think Jesus did it on purpose to show us who he was inviting in, the least of society, people that didn't have value by their societal norms. They have value in what he is doing. Later on in the New Testament, we'll learn of someone named Joanna and another Mary who actually bankrolled the ministry of Jesus. They were integral to Jesus' teaching and healing ministry on earth. But Jesus saw the least, the kids and women, and he elevated them saying that you matter. It wasn't just the least, it was those who had a messy life, those who had darkness on display in their life, those who had brokenness. Jesus didn't shun them, but Jesus almost welcomed and included the messy to show us something, to show them something. There's one account that we get in the Gospels of Jesus having a, a meal with a, a Pharisee by the name of Simon, and it turns into a very awkward dinner party that we get to like peer in on in the scriptures. Let's check this out. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Awkward dinner party, right? I mean, Jesus is having a meal and there's so much going on. Let's look at some context of what all this means. 
There's a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, someone who would be labeled a sinner in the first century is somebody who was living outside of the lines of God's way that was publicly on display. This was somebody that was notoriously doing something that we don't really know exactly what she was up to, but was a big mess. And everybody knew about it. And there was a, this was a Pharisee's home that Jesus was having this meal in. Now, the Pharisee worldview said that the only way to keep your holiness, the only way for you to be good is to keep your distance from sin. And so this woman barges in and it is a big scandal for one because they're in the presence of a sinner woman. This woman, though, she, she is just over the top and just full messy expression of honor and gratitude. She takes an alabaster uh, flask of um, expensive oil. And an alabaster flask during this time was not something that was just nice or expensive. This is probably a family heirloom that she's held on to forever. And she's pouring it on Jesus' feet to honor him, to show respect to him in an act of worship towards him. And this is just so wild and scandalous. And Jesus is sort of just letting it all happen. And you imagine the Pharisee, Simon, like what was he thinking during all this? And the very next verse, he tells us exactly what he's thinking and the big problem he has with this. He says this, um, kiss his feet. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, this Jesus, if he were a prophet, if he was who he says he was, he would know um, who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This guy is appalled. Jesus is breaking so many customs right in front of him. Now, this woman, you know, in the ancient world, you probably don't know this because this is just weird stuff that I research, but you weren't supposed to um, be four cubits uh, a short distance away from an unmarried woman if you were a man. It was scandal. They were way close because she's all like on Jesus' feet, you know, cleaning them and like, you know, bathing them in this oil. Also, you weren't, a woman wasn't supposed to let her hair down in the presence of a man who wasn't her husband. I mean, this is just so messy and over the top. And Jesus' reputation is completely blown with this Pharisee. This Pharisee said, there's no way that this woman uh, or that Jesus is who he says he is because he would have like shunned her. He would have kicked her when she was down by his feet and moved him out. But Jesus, he puts his reputation on the line. After a little bit of back and forth of Jesus explaining, this is exactly what I'm up to, uh, we're told this, that Jesus looks the woman in the eyes. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, again, looking her in the eyes, speaking directly to her, giving her dignity, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus blocks out all the noise from the scandal. He sees this woman in all of her mess. He says, I see your mess, but my mercy is more. That I've come for you, and I love you, and I embrace you, and I will restore you even in your mess. Wow. What a dinner party to be a part of. Jesus came for those whose lives were way too messy or what people thought was way too messy. He came for the least. He came for the messy. He also lets my friends not forget and let us all be scandalized a little bit by the way that Jesus came for the outsider, for those who were looking in on what God was doing from outside the lines. Man, Jesus came for them. There's one account that we get in the gospel of Mark where Jesus is traveling to Jericho. Pick up here. Now they came to Jericho and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, 
which is what a great title to give a guy, right? Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Now you see during this time, if you had any physical impairment, you were completely outside the lines of normal society that you weren't welcomed in places. It was considered that you had sinned terribly or your parents had sinned. And if you had any kind of physical impairment, it was a physical and, um, phys- a physical and spiritual issue that you were just on the outside of society. Your life was relegated to just begging forever. And this is what Bartimaeus was doing. And he hears that Jesus is coming by and there's a great multitude of people following Jesus at this point. And so Bartimaeus gets an idea And we're told this, and when Bartimaeus, he had heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. People are like, Bartimaeus starts shouting at Jesus to help him. And then people are like, shut up, Bartimaeus. You're just annoying. You're on the outside. You don't belong here. Leave him alone. This is important stuff, Bartimaeus. Keep your mouth shut. But I love the chutzpah. I love the grit that we see in Bartimaeus. But he cried out all the more. He could not be stopped. Son of David, have mercy on me. He he calls Jesus son of David, which would have been a Jewish idiom of the time, saying, oh, this is someone who is strong with the Holy Spirit, who can actually bring healing or cast out evil to situations. And Bartimaeus is shouting, son of David, son of David. And the most amazing thing happens, even though there's a great multitude around Jesus, Jesus hears Bartimaeus and he stops. Jesus chooses to be interrupted by this outsider. And we're told this. Jesus answered Bartimaeus and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Which at first, isn't it true that we just like think, come on, Jesus, Captain Obvious here. Blind guy screaming out like, let him see, right? Like we think that. But I actually love what we see about Jesus' character in this, that Jesus gives Bartimaeus dignity by asking him what he wants and looking him directly in the eyes and having a conversation with him, not just assuming that's what's going on. But Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? We're told this, Bartimaeus says, the blind man said to him, Rabbi, or great teacher, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Now, let me tell you what I love about this short passage is I believe there are two miracles that take place in this short passage. One's the obvious one. Jesus touches Bartimaeus' eyes and he's healed. And that's amazing in itself, right? That his sight was restored. But the other miracle that takes place is what I've highlighted there on that last part of the verse. That Bartimaeus followed Jesus on the road. My friends, do not miss this. Let us not miss this. That Jesus takes somebody who was an outsider and invites him in to be an insider. And then he becomes an alongsider in the mission of God as well. And he becomes part of team Jesus on the mission that Jesus was on. Oh, what a transformation. What a miracle. But Jesus, my friends, Whatever lines and whatever boundaries that we place up, walls, fences that we place up between people saying that this God, this Jesus is not for them, man, Jesus is tearing those down. That's what he does for Bartimaeus. That's what he does time and time and time again. And that is what he's still up to today. Let's not miss it. Jesus was always inviting the least, the last, the most unimpressive, the lost the weary, the outsider, the messy into the fold. That's what he was up to and it's what he's still up to. 
Now, it's really easy for us to move on and to, to think about, um, you know, Jesus did this because, you know, he's, um, you know, he had to, like, tell these people, like, they can be healed, they can be healed. It was all just about these moments. But I think there was more going on. Jesus being a master teacher, he's trying to show them something, teach them something. I think he's trying to teach us something. I love what Pastor Zach Lambert in Austin, Texas, he said this. Jesus didn't welcome outcasts and embrace untouchables to make them acceptable to God. He did it to show them and to show everyone else, including us, that God had already accepted them. Sit on that for a second, my friends. Jesus didn't do this and like, you know, have like a magic trick to all of a sudden you were bad and now you're good, but maybe Jesus did this to the outsiders, to the least, to the messy, to show them that his embrace is for them. And it's in his embrace that we're transformed from the inside out. He was showing them, he's showing us that the lines, the boundaries, the walls, they don't play in his kingdom because he's playing a whole different game. I think it's easy for us to, to think about other people when we think about what Jesus did. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just have a few moments to think about this radical message that Christmas gives us for our lives as well. So I want us to just think for a few moments about for you. You know, we talked about the least. Where in your life do you feel less than? Where in your life do you feel like the least? Like you're just a cog in a system. That your life doesn't really matter. That no one would miss you if you were gone. Where do you feel insignificant or unimpressive? My friends, hear the voice of Jesus. Hear this message from the arrival of Jesus into our story. This turning the world upside down message telling you that you are loved. You're loved just the way that you are. That God, you bring a smile to the face of God. And that you matter, eternally matter to him. Where you feel less than, Jesus says that you are greater still. Let me ask you this. Where do you feel like your life is too messy? Where there are like, you know, cobwebs in the corner of your life that you know are pretty jacked up and you know there's patterns in your life or addictions or behaviors that are counter to the life that God wants to give you and you just feel like, oh, it's too messy for this God. It's too messy for a life in God's kingdom. Or maybe for you, it's you believe but you still have doubts. You got questions. You haven't quite circled that square and you feel like this must not be for me because I don't have it all together. My friends, hear the voice of Jesus. Hear the spirit and the heartbeat of Jesus that we've seen tell you that he sees your mess and he loves you all the more. And he's not intimidated by your doubts and questions. He's not thrown off by your mess. He already knows it. He sees your mess, but he says his mercy is more and he wants to restore you. That's his heart towards you. My friends, where do you feel like an outsider? Where do you feel like you just don't belong? Where do you feel like you're playing with the imposter syndrome? Jesus, the voice of Jesus, the heartbeat of Jesus that we've looked at says this, that you have belonging in him and it's in experiencing the embrace of this Jesus that changes everything, that you can belong in him as well. My friends, you are loved. Your mess, your struggles, your flaws, your brokenness, 
Christmas proclaims to us that you are loved and you are valuable. Jesus loves you before you clean yourself up. Jesus loves you before you do anything for him. He loves you and you can't do anything about it. It is a fact of the universe, my friends. Hear that. Let that soak into your soul today that he loves you. When you feel less than, when you feel too messy, when you feel like an outsider, it's what he does then to turn it to where we express it to other people. As the great you know, prophet Uncle Ben from Spider-Man says, with great power comes great responsibility. So if we've experienced such great love from this Jesus, there's a great responsibility, there's a great weight for us to express that love to other people, and especially the types of people that Jesus was all about. So we ask this question all the time around here because it's, it's who we are as a church. We ask this question, how do we partner with God? How do we not just believe in God, but how do we link arms with God? How do we like join what God's doing to bring the up there, the kingdom of heaven, down here to the streets of Kokomo, Indiana? How do we do that? It's not profound, but it's something that's gonna take our whole lives to figure out. It's this right here. We love everyone, always. We have our Jesus lenses on to see and to be looking and seeking for those who are on the outside looking in, those who feel like they're less than or they're lost or they're insignificant, and we run towards them. In the last 20 years, there's been this, what I find to be a silly culture war in our country about you know, people saying, we need to keep Christ in Christmas. We need to keep Christ in Christmas. And a lot of times that levels down to if we're saying happy holidays or Merry Christmas or what color the Starbucks cup is. And I just don't have time for those kind of arguments. I, I don't think they're that important, but... Um, there's a pastor, um, that I, a dear friend of mine, who um, he's, he said this about keeping Christ in Christmas. He says, you wanna keep Christ in Christmas this year? He said this, it actually looks like love in action. You feed the hungry, you clothe the naked, you pray for the sick, you care for the marginalized, you welcome the stranger, protect the orphan and the widow, comfort the afflicted, look after the single mom, stand up to corruption, befriend the outcast, and love your enemies. That's what Jesus was about. That's how we keep Christ in Christmas is that we love everyone always and we run towards those who are all alone or they're too messy or our culture says that they're insignificant. That's how we do it. Um, Tony Campolo, um, who's an author, a speaker, a pastor, a professor, he wrote this book like 25 years ago. And I remember hearing this story in college, so I had to run down at the Greentown Public Library to find this book so I could recall this story. But he tells this story about how he had a speaking engagement in Hawaii. I know, tough gig, right? Um, and he flew into Honolulu, and it was 3.30 in the morning, but he was starving. So he found this little grungy diner because he was trying to find something open in Hawaii time. And he just he sees there's a big guy behind the counter who's kind of gruff. He goes, what do you want? And then Tony's like, I just want a cup of coffee and a donut. So he's 3.30 in the morning munching on this uh, terrible donut and having the stale coffee. And this is when things get interesting because the doors of the diner suddenly swing open. And Tony says, to my discomfort, in March, eight or nine provoked provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and extremely crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting directly next to me say, hey, tomorrow's my birthday, you know, I'm gonna turn 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me to say happy birthday and sing you a song and bake you a cake? And the woman right next to Tony said, come on, (laughs) 
Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I've never even had a birthday party my whole, my whole life. I've never even had a birthday cake. I was just telling you right now because it's my birthday tomorrow. And when Tony heard that, something clicked inside of him. I'd say it was the Holy Spirit imagination inside of him clicked. He said he waited until the women left and he talked to the big guy behind the counter and said, do they come here every night? And the big guy behind the counter says, yeah, every night at the same time, 3.30 in the morning. That woman that was right next to me, he goes, yeah, her name's Agnes. Oh, she's a sweetheart. What do you want to know about her? And Tony says, oh, because I heard that tomorrow's her birthday and I got an idea. What do you say that we throw her a birthday party for her 39th birthday? Right here tomorrow night at 3.30 in the morning. And the big guy had this cute smile come across his face. He's like, that's great. I'll get my wife to bake a cake. And then Tony's like, yeah, we'll, we'll get here early and we'll decorate the whole place. Happy birthday, Agnes. We can get a bunch of her friends to come. And so they end up like decorating at like 2.30 in the morning and they invite like every prostitute in Honolulu to come to this birthday party. And then it's this amazing thing. Um, and at 2.30 in the morning, they get together, they're decorating. The place is boisterous. The place is so crude and so interesting. And 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in comes Agnes and her friend from the night before. And everybody screams, happy birthday, Agnes. And Tony says, never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her from falling. As she was led to one of the stools at the bar, we all sang happy birthday. And we, as we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened with tears and went into a full out cry. Then when the birthday cake came out with all the candles and it was carried out, she lost it. The guy behind the counter mumbled, blow out your candles, Agnes, come on, blow out your candles. And Agnes looked down at the cake and then without even taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look guys, um, if it's okay with you, kind of, could I, could I just take this cake home, not eat it right away? So the big guy shrugged and answered, sure, if it's okay with you. And she goes, can I? I just live a couple blocks down. I'll be right back. I'll just take the cake home. And Agnes stood up off the stool and she carried this cake like it was the holy grail, walked it slowly towards the door and then left. And then everybody was sort of stunned in this moment. And, and Tony Campolo, not knowing what to do, said, hey, what do you guys say we pray? And looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but then it just felt like the right thing to do. So Tony said, I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. And when I finished, the big guy behind the counter leaned over with a trace of hostility in his voice and said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony, in one of these moments of Holy Spirit information, uh, Holy Spirit inspiration said this, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. The big guy said, no, you don't. There's no such church like that. If there was a church like that, I'd belong to it. Tony says, wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? I would. This is what Jesus is inviting us to become. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means for us to keep Christ in Christmas to bring joy and dignity and love into this dark and ugly world. I'm giving my life away for that kind of thing. And I pray that you'll join me and we can do it together.